this uh, question didn't get a lot of traction in the first service, but I'm gonna try it here anyways. Has anyone in here ever heard of GPI before? A quick like Google search will uh, pull up a general progress indicator, which is a tool uh, by which a country's economic growth is measured. It's not at all what I'm talking about, but I just want you to know that if you were to search it, that's what you would find. Um, but if you do a little bit more digging and you sort of continue to scroll down the search results, you'll come across a website called visionforhumanity.org. And there, they will show you what the GPI is uh, around the globe. The GPI, the GPI in this case being the Global Peace Index. The Global Peace Index. Now, um, we were gonna have the image on the screen. We're having lots of screen trouble. Um, so if you're joining us online or here in person, you've already seen some of the challenges we've had and we will continue to have more. Uh, but if you were to pull this up, and, I, and I, I, um, I highly recommend that you do, you'll see a map of the world and you'll see each country in a different color. Um, you'll see a scale at the bottom, and on the far right, you'll see red. On the far left, you'll see black, black being the countries that are the most peaceful, red being the countries that are the least peaceful. The U.S. is yellow, kind of right in the middle. Our neighbors to the north are more peaceful. Our neighbors to the south are less peaceful based on this global peace index. And if you read a little bit about how they come to this conclusion and come to this idea of what the global peace index is for a particular country, or if you dig down a little bit deeper, you can even see it state by state, you will find that they use primarily something called a negative peace in order to measure this. Now, despite its name and its connotation, negative peace is actually a really good thing. You want lots and lots of negative peace because negative peace indicates the absence of violence or fear of violence. The absence of violence or fear of, of violence, that's what negative peace is. And it basically measures how things are. It doesn't take a look at how things, what things could be. It doesn't take a look at how we would get there. It just looks at how things are. Where is there the absence of violence, more or less? And where is the absence of the fear of violence, more or less, from one country to the next? And I find that really helpful. It, it's really great to know where you're starting from, right? But it doesn't really help us figure out exactly what we would do in order to increase negative peace or decrease the peace index of a particular place. It doesn't really help us get there. There's another metric that is used, and they're, they're kind of like in the middle of this research, figuring out exactly what this looks like and how to go about it. They refer to this as positive peace. Positive peace is also good, but in a different way. Instead of just measuring how things are, positive peace are the actionable items that somebody, a person, a group of people, an entire nation could pursue in order to increase the global peace index for their particular place. Positive peace is what I find myself most interested in, most curious about. I definitely want to know exactly where we land. I think the negative peace um, metric is really helpful, but I want to know how do we make steps towards more peace? Or how do we ensure that the peace we have remains the way that it is? If you haven't picked up on it yet, the, the, the Advent theme for this particular week is, in fact, peace. And that's what I want to talk about today for a couple of minutes. And I want to do that using a passage in Isaiah chapter 9. And it goes like this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, 
establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is a message from the Lord. Thanks be to God. And there's more than one mention of peace in this particular passage. There's actually a lot that can be unpacked with this passage. Like, what does it mean the understanding of, like, this, um, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, who would show up on the scene and change everything for Israel? This prophecy was given a couple thousand years, probably before Jesus' arrival. There's a lot of questions we could ask about this and a, and a lot of ways that we could unpack it. But the thing I want to focus most on is that particular title that you saw, Prince of Peace. The Messiah, the coming Prince of Peace. Now, the Hebrew word for prince is interesting because um, across the board, and in most instances, it carries with it a militaristic connotation. It carries with it um, not the way that maybe we would think of a prince within a monarchy, but more of like a military commander or a sergeant or somebody who is leading troops into battle. Somebody who is proactively leading a group of people into a particular direction in order to make a change in that place. Now, it's interesting that it's juxtaposed to this other word, peace, right? And therefore, removing sort of some of the violence that would come along with a, something with a militaristic connotation. And so we have a bit of a paradoxical title given to the Messiah, a prince of peace, a military conqueror who is bringing peace. And if we interpret the first word through the second, we find ourselves removing the violence from the military connotation and instead focusing on the proactivity and the leadership of somebody who would be in a commander or prince sort of position. And then if we continue on and we sort of look a little bit more into like what peace means, I mean, it's a Hebrew word that you might be pretty familiar with if you've been around church for any length of time. It's the word shalom. It's a word that we very simply in the English language replace with the word peace. We just translate it with one other word, but it's a word that has so much, so many layers and so much nuance and so much to it that we do damage to it when we just interpret it with one word. There's so much to unpack when we think about shalom. In fact, most commentators, theologians, Hebrew scholars will point back to the Garden of Eden, pre-brokenness, pre-sin, pre-things falling apart, and point to that as a perfect example of what shalom is. Shalom, in many cases, is actually moving backwards. It's moving back to that experience where there wasn't brokenness and pain, but instead everything was working in harmony together. That's what shalom is. Everything is working in harmony together. It's not peace the way we tend to think of it, like the negative peace or the, neg yeah, the negative peace where there's the absence of violence or fear of violence. Shalom is more of a positive peace. It's all-encompassing. It's actionable. It's something we can take steps towards. It's something that can be strategic. That's what shalom is. And so when Jesus is given the title of Prince of Peace in this prophecy, we see the, a personification of somebody who is proactively pursuing peace, and not just any peace, but shalom, something that's complex, something that's um, well-rounded, something that's all-encompassing, something that means harmony among all things. And Jesus ushered Shalom in wherever he went, in his teachings, in his actions, in his healings, in his miracles, in his everyday regular stuff. He was bringing about Shalom everywhere that he went. We get a glimpse of this in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. He says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
This is the Prince of Peace speaking to his people. He's saying, you spend more time with me, you mimic your life after mine, and you will actually take on a lighter burden. And in fact, you will become a lighter burden to the people around you. You will feel it for yourself, and you will usher it into the world around you. Everything around us will become more peaceful the more we spend time uh, mimicking the Prince of Peace. And this is really what is at the heart of discipleship. Misha talked about this a couple weeks ago. We think of discipleship oftentimes as like we first got to get into the club, and then we think, and then we can do all the stuff that the rest of the club is doing. But in sort of American evangelicalism, we have cheapened that to just get into the club. And then we sort of leave it at that. And we don't spend the time wrapping our lives and our minds and our hearts around this idea of becoming more like the leader of the club. To, to be a disciple is to literally pretend to be the master. That's actually what that means. You're mimicking the master. You're pretending to be the master until it becomes more and more and more natural to you. That's what discipleship is. And so if our leader, if, if the one we are looking to, this Messiah that we await in this season of Advent, is in fact the Prince of Peace, then you and I have the opportunity to follow in that way. We have the invitation, in fact, to follow in that way and to become more and more agents of peace everywhere that we go. But because shalom is such a wide-ranging idea and encompasses way more than just physical violence, then we have the opportunity to look for violence anywhere and everywhere of every shape and form and be the agents of peace in that particular scenario. And I've, as I've spent more time thinking about this, I've identified for me what are the four primary um, modes of violence in my life and what I envision in the world around me or see in the world around me. And I think that we have a, uh, an invitation and an opportunity, especially in the season of Advent, to usher peace into those environments. The list that I have here is not exhausted, exhaustive. There's way more that we could talk about, obviously. But these are some that I've observed and some that I want to talk about for just the remaining bit of our time together. The first is a violence on our time. And we see that in the way that we hurry around from thing to thing to thing. Uh, Julie said something to me a couple of months ago that really stuck with me. She said, have you ever stopped and thought about how much hurry you actually just make up? Like, have you ever thought about how much of the hurry in your life is really just fabricated? Like that you've made up and nobody else is actually expecting you to be in a hurry about that thing, but you're just in a hurry because you've decided that for whatever reason, that thing needs to be hurried along. We've seen it mostly in the way that we parent our kids. We will hurry our kids out the door to go like play at the park or play in the backyard. We got to come on, we got to hurry because we've got, what, to play at the park? You don't need to hurry for that. We make up so much hurry in our lives. And I bet you if you were to stop and think about some of the hurry that you are involved in, a lot of it's sort of made up or it's based on an expectation that you have for yourself or th that, but that nobody else has. Or maybe more than that, you've seen so much hurry happening around you that you've normalized it and accepted it as it is. But hurry is a violence on our time. John Mark Comer, the author of the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says that hurry is a violence on the soul. And I absolutely agree with that. But to be more specific in what it actually does or accomplishes, hurry is a violence on our time. It does damage to our time, this precious resource that we all, um, all have the same amount of. Hurry does violence to that. So when I think about hurry, 
I think about something that needs to be assessed in my life and then something that needs to be um, confronted with peace or with shalom. Do you, have no, you, you probably have no idea how often I hurry out the door to come to work in the morning. I live across the street. I don't need to hurry to come to work in the morning. I've made that up in my mind. I've created a paradigm of hurry to get here when it's 100 paces away. Literally, the, front, the side door of my house to the front door of this building is 100 paces for me. It's probably less for some of you with a little bit of a longer gate, you know. But, I mean, can you believe that? I've made hurry out of that kind of a commute. People have employed all kinds of practices to confront this hurry in their life, this violence on their time. Some people choose the slow lane on the highway. Uh, it's painful, but it's good for you over time. Some people choose the longest line in the grocery store, also painful, um, but a really good use of your time. For me, I have um, I've, I've just taken on walking as many places as I possibly can. You can only walk about three miles per hour. And that takes some different kind of planning, you know, on how you're going to get from point A to point B and be there on time and that kind of thing. But it certainly slows you down. And you would not believe the things that you notice and realize when you're, when you're going three miles per hour. And you wouldn't believe the things that you miss when you're going 60. It's incredible what we are able to take in at that speed. Hurry is a violence on our time. Let me encourage you to confront the hurry in your life with shalom, with peace, take active steps in that direction. A second thing that I see is a violence in our life, um, is a violence on our senses through overstimulation. There's a, a great podcast and series of books actually called Commoner's Communion, and uh, the podcaster and author, he's a musician as well, Strahan Coleman, explains that there was a time in human history where church services and other sort of Christian activity needed to be lively and sort of like awakening and attention-grabbing. That's because the world around us was sort of dull and medicated and apathetic. And there were areas of people's life that just didn't have a lot of excitement to them. And so church was a place to be enlivened and to be awakened, sort of snap out of the the doldrums of the, the medicated life that many people were living. But now we see the opposite. The world around us is stimulating us all the time. In a post-industrial, post-automobile, post-internet, and even post-Christian age, what we need to break from is the stimulation that the world throws at us, not so much the other way around. And so when we come to gather together, we need to move more from a concert venue experience to a cathedral experience with some reverence and some space and some peace and some rest. Overstimulation is a violence on our senses. Shalom in your life will result in periods of time where you fast from that stimulation. You know, it hasn't really been that long that we've had these rectangles in our pocket and that these things have been the uh, primary way that we've received information and the primary way where we've become constantly available all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And yet they've been around long enough and we've been dependent on them long enough that we assume that this is the normal way to live our lives. And so we accept a violence on our senses in a lot of different ways, but this is certainly one of them, a violence on our senses because we allow these screens to stimulate us every single day, almost all day long. Some people choose silence in the car on their commute. Some people choose to go into nature where they can experience the quiet. A good friend of mine has been in town for the past few days. He's from Atlanta where there's just constant stimulation and noise sort of all the time. There's not a lot of escape or it's a lot harder to find escape. 
He loves playing disc golf, and so we found a course near Pine, Colorado, which is a very tiny little town in the South Platte River Basin. And a couple of days ago, we went and played disc golf for a few hours. We had no cell service for several hours, and you could hear a pin drop most of the time. It was dead quiet, and it was amazing. And the amount of time that he and I spent in total silence with each other was incredible and healing and really, really restful because we got a break from the stimulation there's a book by Andy Crouch called TechWise Family, I think, TechWise something. He's got more than one. TechWise is the word you need to remember for that, TechWise. Um, and he suggests in that book, among many other things, that you spend an hour a day, a day a week, and a week a year away from this thing. Turn it off. Like, actually turn it off. It has a power button. I found in this new phone, it's actually really difficult to figure out how to turn it off. Like, there's multiple steps. Because the assumption is that you always have it on. Figure out how to turn it off or let the battery run out if you can't find the button and leave it off an hour a day, a day a week, a week a year. Overstimulation is a violence on our senses. Third, a violence on our emotions and a lot of other things, but we'll focus primarily on that, is the anxiety that you and I have chosen to live with and accept it again as normal. I'm going to be careful here because I do uh, believe very much so that there are anxiety disorders that can be diagnosed and they could be treated through therapies and medications and a variety of other things. And that's, a, that's not exactly what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about more about the fact that every single person in this room experiences a heightened level of anxiety compared to what we experienced a year ago or 10 years ago or a generation ago. And anxiety is not showing any signs of slowing or taking a break or giving us a, uh, some time off. Anxiety is going to continue to come for us day in and day out unless we are proactively and aggressively confronting it with shalom. Practices and patterns in our life that keep us from giving in to what we have just decided is normal. This anxiety is just something that we assume because everybody else is experiencing it is something that is okay. And I want you to know that no matter what kind of anxiety you're dealing with or what level of anxiety you're dealing with, that is not how you were designed to live your life. This one's a little bit tricky because it's not like the others in that you can't really um, always help the anxiety because so much of it is coming at you from everywhere else. It's in the, not the things that you have knowledge of that you wouldn't have otherwise in another era. It's in the things that are happening in your life or in your workplace or in your family. That anxiety sometimes, or most of the time, isn't something that you have, like, allowed or chosen even. You didn't wake up this morning and choose anxiety. I don't think that anybody did that. But we do choose to accept it as normal instead of confronting it with shalom. Corey Ten Boone says, worrying is taking tomorrow's load with today's strength, carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. I know that worry and anxiety aren't always the same thing, but sometimes they are synonymous, and oftentimes they overlap or feed and play into each other. And so I think that her words here are important to consider. There are a lot of ways to combat or confront anxiety. Therapy is a really great way to do that. 
Um, I think uh, in the same way that we confront overstimulation, we can confront anxiety with peace and rest and breaks from the things that bring us anxiety. A couple of books that I found really helpful in understanding anxiety in my life are Steve Cuss's Managing Leadership Anxiety and Edwin Friedman's Failure of Nerve. These two books have been very helpful in me just understanding how anxiety functions, particularly in a family systems format. Anxiety is a violence on our emotions, and unless we choose to confront it proactively with peace, with shalom, then we are allowing something that is other than uh, the Prince of Peace or different than or opposite of the Prince of Peace to take hold of our lives. Lastly, and this one is really on the nose. It's extremely specific, and it's the kind of violence that we tend to think of when we think of the word violence. The other three were sort of a little more abstract. This one is literal. Gun violence is a violence on the internet. Sorry, on the innocent. (laughs) Gun violence is a violence on the the innocent. I'm going to keep saying that now that I've said it once. (laughs) I know that it's on the nose, but it has to be discussed particularly as I consider what gun violence has looked like at schools in our area, a school recently in Michigan. In 2001, there had been 28 school shootings in the U.S. In this year, 28 school shootings. Gun violence in schools is a distinctly American issue. It's not to say that it's not happening elsewhere. That's not my point. My point is it is something that is very specific to our country. Now, I'm of the belief that gun violence is always sad and always problematic and always preventable. Not everybody shares that opinion. I understand that. But we can all get on board with this. Gun violence in schools is unacceptable. And it's preventable. And it's something that we can all do something about. When I send my 15-year-old to to her high school, it feels a whole lot different than it would have 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago or a generation ago. Because the safest places, the places that should be the the most nurturing and the safest in our country have become places of death and terror. And there's not a single person listening to this right now that wouldn't agree that something has to be done about that. Columbine happened right here in our state in 1999. And since that moment, gun violence in schools has continued to wreck lives. And very little, honestly, has been done to prevent it. And if we are going to identify areas of violence in our lives and confront that with peace and shalom. It has to get specific and literal in response to gun violence in schools. Barack Obama said, citizenship means standing up for the lives that gun violence steals from us each day. I've seen the courage of parents, students, pastors, police officers all over the country who say we are not afraid. And I intend to keep trying with or without Congress to stop more tragedies from visiting innocent Americans in our movie theaters, shopping malls, or schools like Sandy Hook. 
when he said that, Sandy Hook had happened not too long or not too long before that, but you could replace that with so many schools at this point, so many theaters and malls and neighborhoods and whatever. Something has to be done. And I don't know exactly what it looks like for us as individuals or us as a church, but we have to confront violence at every turn with shalom if we are to be disciples of the Prince of Peace. One example of this, our, our schools in Inglewood School District have figured this out. Uh, there's, um, there's research that shows that if there are adult presence somewhere outside of the building with some sort of regular basis, it dramatically decreases violence in those schools. And so our kids' uh, preschool, Maddox, uh, formed a couple of years ago this, this like busy bee program. They call it busy bees or something like that. And I did it a couple times and I need to do it again. But it's just mostly dads, like a primarily a group of dads who just like walk around the building for a couple of hours, maybe like once a month or something. And research shows that dramatically increases the safety and the peace of those schools. Something very simple like that. If you want to make a difference and make a change and confront the violence in schools with peace and shalom, talk to a principal. Talk to a, a member of the school board. Talk to a city council person. <laughs> the fact that I can point to these people and they're on the front row is just incredible to me. The resources are at our fingertips, okay? And I'm not saying anybody can just snap their fingers and make the change. No, but we could do something, right? We could confront literal, actual, physical violence with peace. Let's start with our schools, please. Please. To be followers of the way of Jesus is to be followers of the Prince of Peace, to mimic and literally shape our lives around this idea of ushering in and being co-agents of shalom in the world where we live, in our families, in our schools, in our places of work, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, wherever we go, we carry this thing called peace, called shalom with us, and we have a choice to either confront violence with it or to kind of harbor it and keep it to ourselves, or worse, and probably more frequent and common, to ignore that it's even there. We have an invitation and an opportunity, particularly in this season, to embrace peace and then to shell it out anywhere and everywhere we possibly can. That's what we get to do. It's the invitation for us today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to gather together and explore this idea that seems so obvious to me. And yet, becoming more and more foreign in the world around us. Thank you that in this season of waiting and longing and anticipation that we await the Prince of Peace, somebody with a light burden and an easy yoke, and we get to take that on too. I pray, God, that that would be on the forefront of our minds this week. And may we take action to confront violence within ourselves or to ourselves and outside of us and to others. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.